Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 44, Genesis chapter 49 continued. Well, if you can imagine it, we have one more week to finish out Genesis. And then we will get into Exodus, which I just love. And as we continue our study this time of Genesis 49, which is essentially a series of prophetic blessings that predestines the character and attributes of the 12 tribes of Israel, we ended the last time with the fourth-born son of Jacob, Judah, Yehuda. And we saw Yehuda seemingly receive the firstborn blessing. However, what Yehuda actually received was but a portion of that firstborn blessing, the right to rule. We saw that the firstborn blessing consists of two fundamental elements the right to rule, and the right to inherit a double portion of the tribe's wealth. So the receiver of the firstborn blessing typically became the richest member of that tribe. At the same moment, he became the tribe's ruling authority. But that is not what happened with this blessing by Jacob. Instead, in a biblically unique event, Jacob split the firstborn blessing, giving the right to rule Israel to Judah and giving um, the firstborn uh, blessing, uh, rather the double portion uh, part to Joseph by means of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, just so we're clear about what I mean about Joseph receiving the double portion by means of his two sons. At this moment in history, the authority and essence of Joseph's tribe, Joseph's tribe was put into the hands of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Because in the cross-handed blessing from Genesis 48, Jacob had adopted Ephraim and Manasseh, putting them on par with really who was their uncles, but now was their brothers. All right. And as a result of this, Ephraim and Manasseh each received a full share of the wealth of Israel, just like their brothers. Right? And since Ephraim and Manasseh would, from this time forward, represent the tribe of Joseph. And since they each held a full share, not a divided share, a full share of Israel's wealth, the tribe of Joseph therefore held two shares, the double portion. Okay? When we get to Joseph in this series of blessings, we're going to find an expression often used to describe the double portion part of the firstborn blessing and it is fruitfulness and increase. So let's go back now and continue 
with uh, Genesis 49. We're going to pick up where we left off last time at verse 13 of Genesis 49. Verse 13. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses here. We're going to go tribe by tribe. Zebulun will live at the seashore with ships anchoring along his coast and his border at Sidon. What we see here is that, that it is said that Zebulun's destiny is to be in commercial ventures. He's going to be a merchant and a trader. Okay? Even more, his ancestors are going to have a lot to do with the shipping industry. Right? And hundreds of years into the future, we will find that Zebulun's um, land allotment was more or less a land bridge between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. And they never actually, of course, possessed all the territory all the way to the Mediterranean, but they had shipping and trade interests established on both seas. But more directly through their territory ran one of the greatest trade routes of any era, Via Maris, the way of the sea. It began way up north in Damascus, Syria, and wound its way all the way to Egypt. All right. It was an enormous economic boon for the tribe of Zebulun. Now, just as Zebulun's blessing is so short and sweet, so is the tribe's biblical history. Okay. Very little is said about them. No person of significance is mentioned as coming from the tribe of Zebulun. However, in the song of uh, Deborah and Barak, Zebulun is mentioned in that, all right, as being um, one of the several tribes that committed many men to fighting against the king of Hatzor, which was located in the valley of Jezreel. Right, which was in uh, Zebulun's territory. Though precious little is said in the Bible about Zebulun, what is said could be characterized as quite positive and complimentary. Now, even less is known about Issachar. So let's read a little bit about Issachar. Verse 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down in the sheep sheds. On seeing how good is settled life and how pleasant the country, he will bend his back to the burden and submit to forced labor. Now, even less, interestingly, is known about Issachar than his brother Zebulun. In fact, so little is known about Issachar that the ancient Israelite scholars went out of their way to invent good things to say about his descendants. Primarily, it is that while the ancestors of Zebulun toiled away as merchants, it was, they say, to support the tribe of Issachar who were great Torah scholars. 
That's the story. Now, it's rather easy to debunk this as a self-serving fable because after Babylon, when the vast amount of rabbinical writings and rulings and commentary was created, is when the, tra uh, when the tradition was created that, the tor that Torah study was the highest calling of any Jew. Conversely, being a merchant, being absorbed with dealing with such material, mundane matters as trade and money, well, that was just the lowest thing. Okay? So the notion that the merchant tribe would be the supporters of the tribe of learned Torah scholars was quite an ideal. All right? And it fit in very well with the social agenda of the post-Babylon Jews when these legends and traditions concerning both Issachar and Zebulun were created. Now, this might be a good time to mention that while an enormous wealth of information and exciting finds are waiting for anyone who can find the time and, by the way, have the stamina all right, to study the Talmud, one should use it generally just for the purpose of its historical context, helping to understand the social structure in those ancient times, what their thought processes and agendas were and how they evolved, even how certain of the ceremonies occurred, uh, all of the rituals, what they represented, how they were performed. Uh, sometimes the Talmud can help us put certain things from the Bible in proper chronological order. Very valuable. But what is there is not inspired of God. It is in no way on par with the Holy Scriptures. Yet it is not a, some pack of lies or inaccuracies either. Okay? Generally speaking, the writers and commentators of the Talmud were the best and finest, greatest uh, Jewish scholars and sages and historians of their day. But what is written can only be counted upon as earthly wisdom and knowledge, not of the spirit. Okay. Unfortunately, the Jewish people have for thousands of years put the Talmud tradition on par with, or even in some cases, a little above the Holy Scriptures. And Jesus really throttled and verbally scourged the academic elite of his day for doing such a thing. Okay, even telling them that their so-called knowledge of godly matters was really of their true father, the devil, he said. I'm, this is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what he said. All right. He was referring, of course, to that huge and growing body of tradition that was beginning to dominate Jewish life in his era. Now, one more thing about Issachar, and we'll move forward with the next son's blessing. Yisachar being called an ass or a donkey sounds kind of demeaning to us. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it could kind of get you kicked out of class when you're in school. You said that to somebody, you're even smacked around a little bit. You know? But it was not so to the ear of people in Jacob's day. This was not at all a derogatory remark. Okay? Donkeys were valued creatures that were a combination of taxi cabs and the trucking industry of that day. You know, in, in sports today, those of you that are kind of into football, all right, we might call a player a diesel. 
you know, short for diesel truck. And of course, it means that a, an athlete is very powerful and single-minded and straightforward, no nonsense. Um, the opposite of finesse, if you would. Athletes that are referred to diesels wear that title proudly. It would have been the same thing with Yisakar being referred to as a strong donkey. It was a badge of honor. Okay, let's go read a little bit more now of Genesis 49. Let's move on to verse 16. I'm going to read about Dan. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a viper on the road, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so its rider falls off backward. I wait for your deliverance, Adonai. Now we just finished with the first group of six of Jacob's sons, all provided by his wife Leah. Next we see the blessings given to the four children of Jacob's concubines. Okay? But these four were actually born after Leah produced Judah, but before she bore Yisachar and then Zebulun. Now these concubines are often referred to in the Bible as the handmaidens Zilpah and Bilah, servants to Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel. Now while among themselves we can be sure that the twelve sons of Jacob had established a pecking order. Okay. We can also be sure that the four sons born to the handmaidens were often pushed to the bottom of that totem pole. Okay. Other than for Jacob's unabashed favoritism towards his wife, Rachel, Rachel, okay, and the two sons she gave him, Yosef and Benjamin, okay, there is no indication that Jacob himself, though, thought any less of these four sons produced by Zilpah and Bilah than the other eight. Okay? But traditions of the era demanded that sons of concubines didn't quite carry an equal status as the sons of a man's legal wives. Now aware that his twelve sons were only two human proved many times Right, before this point, Jacob was probably concerned that those four sons might be construed by their brothers as second-class citizens. And this likely explains this kind of odd statement in verse 16 where it says, Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Well, what else would he judge them as? I mean, why would Jacob say as one of the tribes of Israel? Well, while obvious to us that all 12 sons were legitimately of Israel because Dan was one of these four sons of his concubines and not his two wives, Jacob wanted to make it clear that they were all 12 part of Israel, one as much as the other. Now, Dan's name means judged. Okay. Although Bilah, okay, uh, Rachel's handmaiden, was Dan's biological mother, okay, Rachel, as her master, had the rights to name that child. And Ra Rachel exclaimed upon that the birth of this child, God has judged me. All right. 
when she couldn't produce a child for Jacob. But her servant girl did. It was a great shame upon a woman who was unable to bear her husband children. So this child was stuck with the name Judged. How'd you like to walk around with that one? Now probably the most famous descendant of Dan was the supernaturally strong Samson. Okay, And Samson was one of the 12 judges in Hebrew, Shaphet, S-H-O-F-E-T, Shaphet, mentioned in the Bible that were raised up by God over a 250-year time frame that we call the period of the time of the judges. It covers the books of the Bible that are named judges. Okay. Well, judges, Shophet, appeared in many of the 12 tribes now, not just Dan. Now, Dan was given the unenviable territorial allotment that had them sharing a border with the fierce and seemingly unconquerable Philistines. And just a quick note. Palestine is simply the Greek word for Philistine. Okay, So when we talk about the Palestinians of the West Bank or the creations of a Palestinian state, understand all right, that what we're actually saying is Philistines of the West Bank or the creation of a Philistine state. Okay, It's not an analogy, it's just the translation. Okay. And it might shake you up a tad to know that prophetically speaking, the Bible tells us that that is the exact thing that is to happen in the last days, that the Philistine state is to come back. Okay. Now, Samson was brought forth by God as a deliverer for the tribe of Dan from the oppression of these Philistines. Now, even though... All the biblical judges, the Shofet, okay, were called by the same title of judge. In fact, they performed very different functions. Some of these judges, the Shofet, were prophets. Some were military leaders. Others were rulers. Some of them were kind of deliverers, all right, like Samson. Now, it's interesting to note that there is mention of a serpent Right, in describing Dan's future characteristics. And while every tribe of Israel struggled with idolatry, giving in to Satan, perhaps none were as vexed by this problem as the tribe of Dan. Okay. Even the great judge Samson had a terrible time resisting the pagan influences of the Philistines, as we see in scripture about how he imbibed himself with prostitutes. He loved to party with these pagans. Right. And he even had a fling with Delilah. He even married a Philistine girl. Okay. Many in the tribe of Dan so wearied of battling the Philistines that they eventually gave up control over their land inheritance. And they moved northward near the border of modern-day Lebanon. Think about prophecy, repeat, about history repeating itself. Part of the Israelites so weary of battling the Palestinians that they give up part of their land and move. They conquered a city way up north 
um, goes even beyond this this map here, all right, called Laish, and they renamed it Dan. And many of the tribe moved to that area. By the way, the ruins of this city are visible today, and many in this class visited them just a few weeks ago. All right. Now immediately, the leaders of Dan set up a carved image, an idol, assigned priests to it, and the city became a center, a center of pagan cult worship and stayed that way for the next several hundred years. The tribe of Dan. Now Dan's tribe diminished over time in both size and importance. In fact, not only are they not even mentioned in the Old Testament listing of tribal genealogies of 1 Chronicles 2, they're omitted in the New Testament listing of tribes that will make up the 144,000 sealed Israelite witnesses told about in Revelation 7. Now, does their being excluded in the tribal makeup of Revelation 7 mean that Dan is extinct for all time? Apparently not. Because in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ is described in Ezekiel 48, Dan does receive his full inheritance. Now we need to remember that the timing of these 144,000 sealed Israelites takes place during what we Christians tend to call the tribulation period, but what the Jews call the time of Jacob's troubles. Okay, And the millennial kingdom then comes in after that. So Dan is apparently around during the tribulation, but possibly he's still up to his old tricks and there's not a single Danite worthy to be part of the 144,000 sealed witnesses. I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Tune in next week. Huh? Now let me show you something <coughs> that I think answers some questions at least about this mysterious tribe of Dan. I told you that Dan means judge, or more accurately, Dan means judged. Okay, At least as we think of that word in our English language. Now, as I've often explained to you, Hebrew is what is called a root word language. Okay, You take a word that has a specific meaning, you add or subtract or change a letter or two, usually it's vowel sounds that you're changing. Okay. In presto, we have a new word. But that new word is very tightly related and connected to that root word, to that original word. For instance, in Genesis 15, verse 14, God says, But I will also judge that nation whom they serve. Okay. The Hebrew word used for judge in that verse is Din, D-I-N. See how we just changed the vowel? Okay. Notice the relationship. Din, Dan. Okay. In between the letter Dalit and Nun, all right, only the vowel has changed, so the two words are related. The point is, Din and Dan both carry the idea of judgment in the sense of retaliation, punishment, a penalty. Okay. Now, this is opposed to another entirely different use 
in the English language of the word judge, as we find in those books of the Bible called Judges in Hebrew Shofet. Shofet means a person who's a magistrate. It usually a person who makes legal rulings or is a leader or a decision maker. A good analogy of Shofet, that kind of judge is, an, uh, is like in our modern American legal system, a judge presiding over a court of law. So here we have two words, Dan and Shofet, that both wind up being translated in English to judge, all right, but they have two totally unrelated meanings in Hebrew. Okay, point being that the name Dan is not indicating a person who presides over a court or makes legal rulings or leads. Rather, Dan indicates someone who is receiving a divine judgment against them. Two pretty big different, I mean, big difference there. Right. And of course, that was the sense of the word that Rachel used to name this child. Dan, I've been judged, okay, born by her handmaiden, Bila. And so here we have this son name, named Judged. Dan having all sorts of calamitous things happening to it. Even his being omitted from the list of tribes in Revelation 7. And so Dan's destiny most certainly was completely reflective of his name. Now, verse 18 of chapter 49 has Jacob suddenly blurting out, I wait for your deliverance, Adonai. Or better, I wait for your salvation, Yehovah. Okay. It's unknown whether this statement was meant to be attached to the blessing of Dan or that Jacob, in a moment of ecstasy, knowing that his time was but moments away, shouted this out to the Lord in praise. Some scholars think that the mention in the previous couple of verses concerning the serpent that bites the heel is a reminder of the scene in Genesis 3.15 about how the woman will produce a seed who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of that seed. All of this an obvious messianic reference. If that's the case, then Jacob shouting out, basically, I wait for the Savior. That's what he means. It's all the more meaningful. I, I don't know that this is actually the case. This is, this is a difficulty that various scholars have worked on and have come to different conclusions. We'll just have to leave it there. Now, let's go back and read a little bit about Gad, which is in Genesis 49:19. Gad, which means troop. Gad, a troop will troop on him, but he'll troop on their heel. Alright. Now, the tribe of Gad, another of the children of Jacob's two concubines, was next up. His blessing's pretty short. About a dozen words in length. Basically, it says that Gad is going to be constantly oppressed and under attack, but in the end, Gad will overcome. They're going to be a troop. There's always going to be battles. All right? And if we look at the territory Gad was eventually given, right up here, we see that Gad will be one of the tribes that, like Reuben, 
right, decided not to enter into the promised land of Canaan. Instead, Gad's descendants settled to the east side of the Jordan River. His brothers, rather his borders were very exposed to several longtime enemies, including the Moabites and the Ammonites. Right? Uh, descendants of Lot, both of them. Right? And much like Dan, the tribe of Gad found themselves constantly at war. On the other hand, this constant warfare led to Gad gaining a reputation as among the fiercest of warriors. Now, interestingly, Gad is not credited in the Bible with any particular outstanding person belonging to that tribe. Elijah, by tradition, is said to be a Gadite, but that is strictly legend and has never been verified. The most famous Gadite was probably Yair, who was a judge, a leader over Gad for a short time. Now, in the Old Testament, we will occasionally run into the geographical name of Gilead. Okay? Gilead and Gad are generally used interchangeably to describe where the tribe of Gad settled. Now, let's read a little more. Right, let's read verse 20. Asher's food is rich. He will provide food fit for a king. Asher is the third of Jacob's concubines, four sons. Excuse me. And once again, we can't help but notice the very short and succinct nature of the blessing given to him. Asher means happy. And certainly the blessing Jacob gave to Asher and his descendants was one of well-being, if not downright good fortune. Asher's portion of land was some of the most fertile um, in the Holy Lands. Right here. Okay. Stretching between the land of Tyre onto... Mount Carmel, and their corn and their olive oil was famous for its quantity and its quality. Now, apparently, Asher tended to shun military conflicts and chose a very peaceful life of agriculture. Consequently, we just don't read of any great military commander, leader, or even a judge coming from the tribe of Asher. All right, let's read on a little further. Verse 21. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Now, Naphtali is the last of the four sons of Jacob's wives' handmaidens. And true to form, Naphtali is given a very abbreviated blessing. And Naphtali is told that his descendants, in some Bibles will say, is as a hind let loose. H-I-N-D, a hind let loose. And a hind is a female deer, a doe. All right, And we find many passages throughout the Bible that make reference to a hind, always in a favorable light. And we're told in this single verse that Naphtali is destined to be of graceful beauty, swift, very quick to react. And when we look at Naphtali in times after they entered the promised land, we find the most prominent mention of that tribe in Judges 5 in the song of, De uh, of uh, Devorah and Barak 
where Barak and his tribe of Naphtali are singled out for the special acts of bravery and a very significant uh, military conflict between the Israelites and some of the Canaanite uh, tribes. Now for me though, most significant is this unprecedented honor the tribe of Naphtali received because it was in Naphtali's territory which eventually became part of the Galilee that Jesus recruited the most of his disciples and then began his ministry. Interestingly, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 1 prophesied that the insignificant territory of Naphtali would be seen as receiving a great light. Okay, and of course, Isaiah 9 is one of the greatest prophecies concerning the coming of Christ in the entire Bible. So Naphtali was greatly blessed. Um, even if none of the other things of importance could really be said about his tribe. Well, we've got ten down now and two to go. Okay, up next we've got we've got uh, Joseph. So let's read Genesis 49, 22 through 26. Yosef is a fruitful plant, a fruitful plant by a spring with branches climbing over the wall. The archers attacked him fiercely, shooting at him, pressing him hard, but his bow remained taut and his arms were made nimble by the hands of the mighty one of Yaakov. From there, from the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you by El Shaddai, who will bless you with blessings from heaven above. Blessings from the deep lying below. Blessings from the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your father are more powerful than the blessings of my parents. Extending to the farthest of the everlasting hills, they will be on the head of Joseph, on the bow of the prince among his brothers. Now one can only imagine Jacob's anticipation of getting around to the official blessing of his most favored son. One can also imagine his 11 brothers bracing themselves for what they knew was coming. Praise heaped upon praise. Blessing heaped upon blessing. The double portion going to Joseph seeming to them to be double of theirs at the least. But let us remember a very important factor in this blessing of Joseph. While it would happen in the name of Joseph, it would come about under the tribal authority, basically, of Ephraim, and to a lesser degree, Manasseh. Now, for all practical purposes, once Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, reached maturity, married, and had children of their own, there would be no more tribe of Joseph, just Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph would just be a memory. Right? And we can recall from Genesis 48 that it was Ephraim to whom all the rights and honors of Joseph would accumulate because Jacob also gave Ephraim the firstborn blessing, remember the cross-handed blessing, even though Manasseh would also prosper on his own right. Now let me say that again. Remember, 
when Jacob gave Joseph the firstborn blessing, he did it in the form of naming, of naming Ephraim and Manasseh to supersede Joseph. And further, he pronounced that Ephraim was to be considered the firstborn, even though he wasn't. Okay. Joseph did not get the honor, though, that a father typically gets to pronounce the firstborn blessing upon his own children. Right? Because at the moment of that cross-handed blessing, Jacob became the father of those two boys, taking them away from Joseph. He said, all your future children could be yours. These two are mine. Perhaps the overriding theme of this blessing upon Joseph, which is to be carried forward primarily under the banner of Ephraim, is fruitfulness. This fruitfulness is not only told of Joseph's personal life, it tells of his descendants' destiny. Okay? Yet this fruitfulness came at a very high cost. Joseph endured a lot in his life. Okay? His fruitfulness was not a result of his personal cleverness or his good fortune or just having things handed over to him. His fruitfulness was a direct result of his faithfulness. And his faithfulness a result of his absolute, unwavering trust in God. Okay, now I wonder how many of us could have endured all those years in prison under false charges, let alone being rejected as he was all right, by our family the way Joseph was, all right, and then forgiving all. Okay, not only forgiving, but then blessing those who had done to him such incredibly pitiless, merciless wrongs. Okay, and beyond even that, having such a sustaining faith that he refused to harbor all bitterness because he knew without doubt that all this had been a part of God's divine plan for his life, even if as it happened, it absolutely made no sense. And it was so terribly painful. Maybe to those who run the good race in their lives, clinging to the faith no matter the circumstances, these words of Jacob reveal God's heart towards them, towards us. Blessing upon blessing, mercy upon mercy. Okay. Now, Historically speaking, the fruitfulness of Ephraim and Manasseh was most apparent. Now, Manasseh received the largest of all the territorial allotments spanning both the east and the west banks of the Jordan. And in the first chapter of Numbers, we see that together, right, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, that is the whole tribe of Joseph, if you would, was the largest at 75,900 men. And not surprisingly, the tribe who received the other half of that split firstborn blessing, Judah, was the second largest at 74,600. Yet, as some years passed, by the time of Numbers 26, the census of Numbers 26, something around 40 years later, Judah's population had only grown marginally to 76,500, while the combined populations of Ephraim and Manasseh had jumped to 85,200, according to the census. Fruitfulness was promised to Joseph, handed off to Ephraim, 
and fruitfulness is what happened. Now, as we are only now, within the last decade, beginning to get a better grip um, on some, some prophecies, Ephraim's fruitfulness, it seems, may have grown to proportions that are staggering. Remember, it was Ephraim that was eventually dominated and absorbed, uh, who had a, rather, uh, who, who eventually dominated and absorbed every tribe of Israel except for Judah and Benjamin. Okay. Further, when that one huge super tribe named Ephraim that was made up from those ten tribes was overcome by the Assyrians and scattered throughout the known world and far to the south as well, by the way, in Egypt, most of Ephraim joined their genes with the genes of the Gentile world. Right? And as we've recently discovered, the tribes of Ephraim who retained their identities throughout the centuries but lived in isolated areas of the world also number in the millions. Okay? Who among us in this world has the genes of some of the tribes of Ephraim in them we don't know? Okay? But one could guess that it's in the hundreds of millions. Okay? Fruitfulness fulfilled. Okay. And that in itself is yet another fulfillment of going back to Genesis 48, verse 19. His, Ephraim's, descendants will become the fullness of the Gentile nations. I mean, this has literally happened. Okay. The one thing that is still not completely clear, though it's getting clearer, is the precise way this matter of the split blessing going to Ephraim is going to fully manifest itself. I mean, will this be a strictly physical matter, genealogical, that those Gentiles who biologically but unknowingly possess Ephraim's genes in their bodies are in for a significant blessing? Or is it strictly a spiritual matter that God's blessing upon the Gentile world was predicated upon those who have benefited from identifying with Ephraim Israel? That is, that we Gentile believers identify spiritually with Israel, as Paul instructs us in Romans 11, or is it some combination of both? I don't know. All right, But it's kind of coming together. Okay? What we need to take away from all this is that all believers in Yeshua are destined to identify with Israel on some level. Okay. And Ephraim sits smack in the middle of making this identity real and not merely philosophical or some kind of wonderful ideal. Okay. Ephraim is like a magnificent bridge that organically and spiritually connects the world of the Jews with the world of the Gentiles. Okay. Now next week, we will look into the last tribe of the blessing of Genesis 49, Benjamin, and then fittingly get into the last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, and next week we'll in fact end our study of Genesis. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.